Amen. And good morning. Happy Mother's Day to the moms in the room again. I wanted to, uh, just as a shout out to the moms and the spiritual moms and the moms-to-be in the room, I wanted to read a little story about a mother's love for her son. It comes from a children's book called The Runaway Bunny by best-selling author Margaret Wise Brown. Once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away. So he said to his mother, I am running away. If you run away, said his mother, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. If you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish in a trout stream, and I will swim away from you. If you become a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, I will become a fisherman, and I will fish for you. If you become a fisherman, I'll become a rock on the mountain high above you. If you become a rock on the mountain high above me, I will be a mountain climber, and I will climb to where you are. Well, then I will be a crocus in a hidden garden. I will be a gardener, and I will find you. I will be a bird, and I'll fly away from you. I will be a tree that you come home to. And I can't turn these pages. If you become a tree, said the little bunny, I'll become a little sailboat, and I'll sail away from you. I will become the wind and blow you where I want you to go. Then I will jo join the circus, and I'll fly away on a flying trapeze. Then I will be a tightrope walker, and I'll walk across the air to you. Then I will become a little boy, and I'll run into a house. Then I will become your mother and catch you in my arms and hug you. To which the little bunny responds, shucks, I might just as well stay where I am and be your little bunny. And so he did. <laughs> Have a carrot, said Mother Bunny. <laughs> now, it's a great story. It's a great story for Mother's Day. It's a great story for the love that a mother has for a child. It's a great story about pursuing love. It's a story that I love because it demonstrates something that we often forget about love. Perhaps the greatest measure of the depths of one's love is the distance that you'll travel to pursue our beloved. That is something that many moms in this room have modeled very well, but nobody models pursuing love better than Jesus. If you're not already in your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 10, the passage we just read a moment ago. If you are our guest this morning, we're so grateful that you're here. Just so you know, our typical practice at Pocosin Baptist Church is not to talk about all, you know, all the current events that might be happening in our world, but to take a book of the Scripture and just go chapter by chapter, line by line, verse by verse, and understand what the Scripture says. So that's what we're going to do today. And today, in God's providence, we find ourselves in the middle of Matthew chapter 18. We are somewhere in the second half of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, he's in the middle of his fourth major teaching discourse, 
Uh, chapters 18 through 20 are a major teaching section from this gospel. And the major theme of this entire teaching section is it's all about the way that God's people relate to one another. In today's passage, we're going to learn about a God who pursues runaway people. But even more than that, or in addition to that, we're also going to learn that Jesus commands us, his people, to follow God's example and pursue one another. The big idea our passage teaches us this morning is that because God continually pursues us, we must continually pursue one another. Because God continually pursues us, we should continually pursue one another. With God's help, I want to show you three truths about this pursuing love from our passage this morning. First, we're going to see that Jesus is the pattern for pursuing love. Then, that Jesus gives us a process for pursuing love. And finally, Jesus gives us power for pursuing love. So let's begin with the pattern that Jesus gives us for pursuing love. Before Jesus says a word about how we must pursue one another, he reminds us how God pursues us. And he reminds us by telling us a story. But before that story begins, uh, Jesus repeats an idea from last week's passage when he says, don't mistreat any of my little ones. Look with me at verse 10, Matthew 18, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for or because I tell you that in heaven their angels see the face of my Father who is in heaven. All right, so Jesus says, don't mistreat my little ones. They're precious to me. I love them. Don't mistreat them. We talked about that a lot last Sunday. But then Jesus gives us this kind of strange reason. He says, don't mistreat these little ones because their angels are looking at my Father's face in heaven. Now, what does that mean? Some people have said that this passage teaches that every one of us has a guardian angel. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether that's what it's teaching or not. There's really not enough evidence to suggest that e every one of us has a guardian angel. There's really not a whole lot else in Scripture that would suggest that. And in reality, it doesn't really matter if the angels are playing man-to-man -man defense or zone, if you know what that is. The point is, God loves you enough to send even his angels to care for you. A lot of people get distracted by angels and spiritual beings. They're fascinated by that sort of stuff. But the point is not the angels, but God. The point is him. And that point is made clear by the story Jesus tells beginning in verse 11. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Doesn't he leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So Jesus tells a story about a shepherd that has a 100 sheep. 
And one day, one of those sheep runs away. He goes astray. What would that shepherd do? Now, many of us, probably, because we don't value sheep as much as a shepherd would have in Jesus' day, would probably think, well, I got 99 others. It's not a big deal. But if a shepherd thinks that way, how long is he even going to have 99 sheep? See, in Jesus' day, if you're a shepherd, even if you have 100 sheep and you have 99 left behind, you will still chase after that one missing sheep. That would be what a shepherd would normally do. So this shepherd does what every shepherd would do in Jesus' day. He, he leaves the 99 safely in a pen, and he chases after the one that is lost. Here's a question I want us to consider this morning. Who are the lost sheep that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18? I think most of us hear this parable, and we immediately think, that Jesus is talking about chasing after unbelievers. Jesus pursues unbelievers and until they repent and believe, and he brings them into the fold of God. So in this story, there's 99 Christians, and Jesus chases after the one unbeliever and saves that person and brings them into God's sheepfold. Well, that is true, if, you're an if you were an unbeliever in this room, all of you either were or are, you are only a follower of Jesus now because God pursued you, right? In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells this same story, and his point is that God pursues unbelievers. That's the point in Luke 15. You can read it this afternoon if you'd like. But I want to suggest to you that is not the point that Jesus is making here in Matthew 18. Just as an aside, some people use this as a reason to say that the Scriptures aren't true. You ever read a story in Matthew, and then you read the same account in Luke or Mark or John, and you notice Jesus says things a little bit differently, and the story is a little bit different? Why is that? Well, it helps to remember that Jesus was a traveling preacher. And so as a traveling preacher, Jesus, more likely than not, said the same thing, told the same stories more than one time, right? How many times have you heard me say, brother, sister, friend, or Holy Spirit, preach louder than I can preach? Or how many times have you heard me tell the story of the, the grizzly bear and the cliff that I told on Easter? If you've been around for a while, you kind of hear me say a couple things more than once. At some point, the preacher just kind of runs out of things to say, so he goes back and says some old things again. Well, Jesus was a traveling preacher, and so it makes perfect sense that Jesus would tell this story about a shepherd chasing after one sheep and use it one way in Luke and use it in a different way in Matthew. That shouldn't be that hard for us to accept. But our job today is to figure out what Jesus means in Matthew 18. So let's get back to the question we posed just a moment ago. Who are the lost sheep? I think the answer becomes clear when you look at a term that Jesus uses on both sides of this story. In verse 10, Jesus says, do not despise one of these little ones. Then he tells the story, and then in verse 14, Jesus says that God doesn't want one of these little ones to perish. 
If you were with us last week, you remember that when Jesus is referring to the little ones in Matthew chapter 18, he's referring not to physical children, but to spiritual children, to Christians. So when Jesus brackets this story with a reference to little ones, we ought to get to get the clue that this story is about how God pursues his people. The lost story in this sheep, the lost sheep in this story are Christians. They're Christians. Maybe that confuses you. Maybe you're thinking, well, I thought the hymn said, I once was lost, but now I'm found. How is it that Christians can be lost sheep or like lost sheep? Well, there's more than one way to be lost, isn't there? You can be totally lost, like the water bottle that I used to have that looked exactly like this until I left it on an airplane in Colombia. Totally lost, never to be seen again. Or you can be temporarily lost, like this very same water bottle that I misplace in my house every single day. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. You can be totally lost, or you can be temporarily lost. The, the unbeliever in Luke 15 is totally lost. This is a person that doesn't know Jesus. They're not a part of the family of God. And in that story, the shepherd pursues the lost sheep until they repent and believe and are welcomed into the family of God. But the sinning believer in Matthew 18 is only temporarily lost. And like a shepherd pursuing a lost sheep, Jesus pursues his people until they repent and are restored into the family of God. What does this mean practically, Christian? It means that you can and will wander. You can and will stray but you will not and cannot perish. You will not and cannot be totally lost. Look at verse 14. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's interesting that word perish there in verse 14 is the word that Luke uses in his version of the story to describe the lost person. But Jesus says, for my straying sheep, not lost, but straying sheep, they will never perish. If you belong to Jesus, dear Christian, you may wander, but you will not be totally lost. If we had time today, we could talk for hours and hours and hours about the ways that God has pursued each one of us in this room that belonged to him. How many times have you wandered, Christian? Remember the hymn writer, he's saying, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Are you, dear Christian, prone to wander? I am. How many times has God chased you down? Where would you be 
if not for his pursuing love. Perhaps that might be a question for us to discuss over lunch today or at fellowship group this week or in your get-together for discipleship or Bible study. Tell a, tell a story about how God pursued you, Christian, and brought you back to himself. Jesus is the pattern for pursuing love. But how does God pursue his wandering sheep? In the runaway bunny, the mother just changes into a tightrope walker or into the wind or whatever. How does God pursue his runaway sheep? Verses 15 to 17, the next part of our text, teach us that God pursues his people through his people. How does God chase you down, Christian? Through his people. Verses 15 to 17, we see that Jesus gives a process for pursuing love. Uh, that process is sometimes called uh, church discipline. And it is uh, one of the, we can, if we can be honest, one of the more uncomfortable and perhaps controversial passages in the Gospel of Matthew. Moms, I did not plan to celebrate your big day with this passage of Scripture, but in God's providence, this is where we are. So happy Mother's Day. You're welcome. <laughs> Let's look at verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If you'd like a more in-depth treatment of this entire text, verses 15 to 17, I'd encourage you to go to our website. You'll find a sermon I preached just on those three verses from October 14th, 2018. If you just want to just dive into 15 to 17, you can look for that sermon and listen to that. What I want to do as we look at a bigger chunk of Scripture this morning is just maybe look at the passage from a bird's eye view. Uh, notice a few observations from these verses, this process. First of all, it's for sin, not annoyances. This is not a process for what to do when someone is bugging you. You know, someone smacks their gum or chews really loud or bites their fingernails. It's not a process for that. This is a process for confronting someone who is sinning. Now, by the way, this doesn't mean that you need to confront every person every single time that they sin. Wives, if you did that with your husbands, that's all that you would talk about. I didn't reverse that because it's Mother's Day, but Father's Day's coming. <laughs> Just wait. Listen, sometimes you're going to be sinned against, loved one, and you can confront it, but the right response in that situation may very well be to cover it. 
First Peter chapter 4, verse 18 says that love covers a multitude of sins. So sometimes the right response is to say, okay, I know that person sinned. It wasn't, they shouldn't have done it. That was wrong. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dwell on it. I'm gonna choose not to hold it against them. I'm gonna cover over it. I'm not gonna gossip about it. I'm not gonna resent them. I'm just gonna cover it. Sometimes that's the right response. Sometimes the right response is to confront. And by the way, knowing which response is right in a particular situation often takes incredible wisdom. But I will tell you this, Christian, those are the only two right responses to sin. Cover or confront. That's it. Be bitter, not an option. In fact, the context of Matthew 18, next Sunday's sermon, it'll make it very clear that Jesus expects us to be people that forgive a lot, even sometimes when someone does the same thing over and over again. But when we're sinned against, the only right responses are to cover or confront. Oh, by the way, confronting shouldn't be limited to those times when you've been personally sinned against. Uh, Jesus mentions that here because, as a general rule, the first person sh to confront a person should be the person that was sinned against. But there certainly are occasions where you might be aware, you might have seen someone sin, and it's right for you to confront them, even if it wasn't against you. Consider Galatians 6, verse 1, that says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, not just one against me, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Or James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So this is a process, not for annoyances, but for dealing with sin. Second, I want you to notice that this process is for Christians, not for unbelievers. If you notice in verse 15, Jesus says, if who sins against you? Your brother. Now, Jesus is here as would have understood that that would include your sister too. So ladies, you don't get a free pass. Brothers and sisters. Jesus is clear. This is dealing with sin against me from a Christian. Your unbelieving friends do not need to be confronted for each and every sin. They need to be converted. They need to repent and believe the gospel. There might be times where you might have a confrontation with them, but as a general rule, these verses are meant to be applied to the local church. This is for the community of faith, for the people of God. Don't take these verses and try to apply it to your unbelieving child or your coworker or your neighbor. This is primarily meant to define how God's people relate to one another. Listen to the way Paul talks about church discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 12. Paul says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? You see where the pattern for church discipline in the Scriptures is meant to be just that, church discipline. It's meant to be for relationships in the church. And if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know something about Christians. Even though the media will paint us as being very, very judgmental, it's hard to find a TV show or a Christian anywhere in the news that isn't incredibly judgmental. Even though that's the picture you'll see of us, really, we shouldn't be that way towards you at all. If you're not a Christian, oh, now we believe that you're in sin just by your separation from God, but as far as your specific day-to-day -day life, we are not to be judgmental about that. What do we have to do with that? Our job is to take care of our own, to make sure that we're following Jesus. That's our primary job, not to go nitpicking all of the sins of our unbelieving neighbors. If, if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just tell you, you couldn't obey the law of God even if you wanted to. What you need today is not to try harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and figure this thing out. What you need is to admit your total inability to please God on your own. And cry out to Jesus, who came to this earth and lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death to pay the penalty for your sin. That's what you need. You need Jesus, not some instructions on how to deal with conflict. Until you turn from your sins, unbeliever, and trust in Jesus, trying to follow Jesus' teaching here is kind of like trying to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic really doesn't make a lot of sense, and it's not going to help anything in the end. What you need, first and foremost, is to cry out to Jesus. But for the Christians in this room, we are expected to hold each other accountable to follow Jesus' teaching. And that responsibility is especially true for the people that you go to church with, those in your local church. This is a process for Christians not unbelievers. Third, notice that this process is slow, not fast. It's slow, not fast. With, with a few exceptions, and there are a few exceptions, the church discipline process is meant to be slow and steady and maybe even a bit tedious at times. Notice in these verses that you never move to the next stage until the person refuses to listen to you. That's incredibly important. These have often been called the steps of church discipline. I really dislike that terminology because a step implies you take one and then the next one, right after the other. Methodical, you move. Let's do this thing, right? Some of you guys are thinking, I got to get my steps today. Well, you can do it later. <laughs> I prefer phase. These are not steps, but phases. 
and each phase, one-to-one, one with a few others, the entire church, and then removal. Each phase, it does not move to the next phase until that person refuses to listen to you. Biblical counselor Jay Adams puts it this way. He says, in this process, you must distinguish carefully between unwillingness to listen and a failure to understand or accept your viewpoint on the matter. If the brother or sister continues to discuss the matter with you, asking for further evidence, saying that he understands the facts differently, etc., or if he believes that your interpretation of the biblical verses that bear upon the case is wrong, surely you are obligated to consider these matters, end quote. In other words, the churches that look at Jesus' teaching here and try to barrel through this thing have really missed the point. This is meant to be slow and steady and patient. Because, number four, this process is restorative, not punitive. In other words, it's meant to restore the sinner, not punish them. Notice Jesus is talking about gaining your brother in verse 15. This is not about shaming a wandering sheep. This is not about punishing them, paying them back. This is about bringing them back into the fold of God. Imagine this. Imagine that I'm near the edge of a cliff, And I notice not far from me, no grizzly bear this time, I notice not far from me one of my daughters playing at the very edge of the cliff. If I don't pursue her, is that loving? Absolutely not. It is absolutely unloving to watch someone about to make a wreck of their life and not in love pursue them. Well, what if I see my daughter there playing on the edge of the cliff and I chase her down with a baseball bat screaming? Would that be loving? Absolutely not. Again, the point is not to scare the person. How dare you be so near that cliff? But to help them. So too, this process in Matthew 18 is about avoiding these two extremes. One of avoiding wayward sheep and ignoring them, or the other extreme of attacking them. This is meant to be to restore the person. I think it's significant that next week's passage, Jesus tells his disciples to forgive 77 times. In other words, you keep forgiving over and over and over again. You're very patient. You're very gracious because the goal is not to punish but to restore. Final observation from this process is that it is declarative, not determinative. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus says that this process concludes when an unrepentant sinner refuses to listen to the church and is treated like what? Like a Gentile, like a tax collector. Now, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? treated them kindly. He loved them. He spent time with them. He cared for them. Jesus' point is not that we begin to mistreat the person, but that we no longer treat them as part of the community of faith. In other words, we treat them as if they're not a believer. 
That's what Jesus is saying when he says, treat him like a tax collector or an unbeliever. When a person who says, I'm a follower of Jesus, will not repent of their sin, even when they go through this process, we ought to say to them, we don't think you're a follower of Jesus. Here's what that might mean practically. Imagine a PBC member, and this is a totally made-up scenario, Imagine a PBC member is caught up in an adulterous relationship. You see something that gives you great concern. You're, you're fairly certain this is what's going on, so you confront him. He admits it, but he won't repent. You try that until it's obvious he's refusing to listen, so you bring one or two people with you, following Jesus' instructions, and you confront him again. He won't repent. You continue to try that. It's obvious he's not listening to you any longer. So you go to the elders, and the elders then bring it to the church. Eventually, during a members' meeting, the entire church is tactfully informed of the details, and the church is instructed to be the members of the church are instructed, pray for this person and plead with them to repent. He says he's a Christian, but he's not living like one. And then, after a time when that person still will not repent, he is removed from membership in the church. That does not mean that that person is no longer welcome on the property. Doesn't mean they can't come to church. Doesn't mean their kids couldn't be in VBS. But it does mean they're no longer a member here. And yet, we need to say a little bit more than that. Because a person that goes through this process is no longer a member here in a way that's a little bit different than it would be for somebody that just moves away or decides to change churches for a totally legitimate reason. This person has been removed through discipline. And for nearly 2,000 years, Christians have referred to this final phase, verse 17, as excommunication. I know that term excommunication might uh, conjure up images of, of some sort of severe shunning or worse, but the term it comes from a Latin term, excommunicatio, that literally means out of communion. And church discipline was called excommunication because when a person was removed by discipline, they were no longer allowed to take communion with the rest of the church. Maybe you think, well, why communion? That seems strange. Do you remember, Christian, when you were baptized, what were you saying to the church upon your baptism? You're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. You're telling your whole church, I'm a follower of Jesus, right? What are you saying every single time you take communion with your church? You're saying, I'm still following Jesus. You might not be thinking that, but that's what the act of communion, that's what you're saying. You're saying, I'm still following Jesus. It's like you're renewing your wedding vows. And when the elders of the church serve you communion, we're saying we believe that you are still following Jesus. And when someone is disciplined in this manner, what we're saying is we can no longer affirm that person's profession of faith. They claim to follow Jesus. They maybe understand the gospel. They can say some right things about what it means to be a Christian. 
But Christians, when they're confronted, will eventually repent. And this man, this woman, refuses to repent. So here's what I mean when I say it's declarative, not determinative. The church is not determining whether the sinner is a Christian or not. We don't have that authority. What we are doing is declaring to each other and to the Lord and to the world that we can no longer affirm that that person is a Christian. So we treat the unrepentant wanderer as if they're an unbeliever and pray that they will be restored, and then we forgive them and receive them back. Maybe you're thinking, man, all this sounds so unloving. Can I just remind you, dear friend, that Jesus is love. God is love. He cannot teach us to do anything that could possibly be unloving. If he's the very definition of love, everything he does is loving. This process is loving to the person that's caught in sin, even if initially it doesn't seem like it. Let me ask you, if you went to a cancer doctor and you had some tests done and you're trying to determine if you have cancer or not, would the doctor be loving if he refuses to read the results to you? Even if it's bad news? It might, maybe he feels like it's nicer to you, but by withholding the bad news from you, he is not loving you. And Christian, we are not loving the wanderer if we will not confront them. It's also loving to the church as a whole. Is it loving for a cancer doctor to refuse to cut out cancer that's treatable? Wouldn't it also be unloving for Jesus to refuse to give his people a method for dealing with unrepentant sin? Maybe you're just thinking, all this sounds really, really, really hard. If you're thinking that, you're absolutely right. I remember the very first time that my wife Holly and I tried to follow Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, and we had to visit a member of our youth group and confront them over some sin. And on our way to that meeting, we pulled the car over and both of us threw up on the side of the road. We we're so anxious and in turmoil over it. It is hard. This is not easy. But thanks be to God, number three, Jesus gives us power for pursuing love. Jesus gives us power for pursuing love. In verses 18 to 20, Jesus promises two gifts that will empower us to obey this process even when it's hard. The, the, the first gift is that Jesus gives us his authority. Look at verses 18 and 19. Uh, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, both of those verses are often very, very misunderstood. Our Roman Catholic friends often misinterpret verse 18, and they claim that the church has the authority to kick somebody out of heaven, to anathemize somebody, to damn them. 
That's not at all what Jesus is saying. It's declaring something, not determining anything. Verse 19 is often misunderstood by our charismatic friends who say that as long as two of us to agree to pray for the same thing, then Jesus has to give us what we ask for. So just get two of you, pray it, and you'll receive it. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying here either. In the context, Jesus, of course, is talking about church discipline. He's saying that the local church that acts faithfully in this manner speaks with the authority of heaven. Think of like a press secretary at the White House. The White House press secretary speaks with the authority of the President of the United States. The White House press secretary doesn't have the authority to govern like the President of the United States. She can't sign, you know, a, a bill into law, but she can speak on behalf of the President of the United States. So too are we as the church. If you're a part of this local church, no matter how insignificant you might feel in terms of something like this, you have been authorized by Jesus to be heaven's press secretary, not to kick someone out of heaven or welcome them in, not to demand whatever you want, but to say, we affirm this person's profession of faith. That's what we do every time we welcome someone in to membership. We're saying, we think they're a Christian. Or to say, we can no longer affirm that profession of faith. That's what we do every time we remove someone through church discipline. Acting like heaven's press secretary. And Jesus makes it clear that this is not the authority that an individual Christian has, but that all of us have together. That's why he says, two of you must agree. So you don't have authority, individual Christian, to say, this person's, I don't think they're a Christian. But as the church, we share that authority. Let me say a word to the Christians in this room who are not members of a local church. God's design for you, Christian, is to be a part of a community that loves you with pursuing love. Dear Christian, disconnected Christian, who is going to love you enough to pursue you like this when you're wandering? Dear Christian, disconnected Christian, who are you going to pursue when they wander? God's intent, his design is that we would be connected to a local church. So I don't know how you obey Matthew 18 at all apart from being connected to a local church. So if you're in this room and you're a Christian, but you're not a part of a church, you're interested in being a part of a place like PBC, talk to me after the service. Jesus gives us one more gift to help us pursue one another. He guarantees us his presence. Verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That verse is often misunderstood too. I can't tell you how many times I heard it at my Wednesday night Baptist prayer meeting when like five people showed up. Jesus is here, two or three are gathered in his name. Well, that's not what he's talking about there either. He's not trying to make us feel better when few people show up to our church events. 
We know that Jesus is everywhere. God is omnipresent. Where can we go from his spirit? We read earlier, nowhere. What Jesus is promising here is a special presence of God to equip you and enable you when you're faithful to do this really, really hard work. And can I just tell you, Christian, from my own experience, every time I have been faithful to follow the instructions here in Matthew 18, Jesus has showed up in powerful ways. He promises he will. So what's the bottom line, Christian? Because God continually pursues us, we should continually pursue one another. I began this morning by saying that the, the greatest measure, perhaps, of the depths of one's love is the distance that will travel to pursue our beloved. And Runaway Bunny, the mother, will do almost anything to chase after that wandering son. And yet, at the end of the story, the bunny decides never to leave and just to stay and enjoy a carrot. You and I are not like that bunny. We don't just imagine running, we run. We don't just think about wandering, we wander. And yet, God still pursues us and even recruits our brothers and sisters, our family, to help him pursue his runaway sheep. So let me ask you, dear Christian, are you wandering? Are you trapped in unconfessed sin? Have you resisted the sincere attempts of brothers and sisters to confront you? Are you refusing to listen to those who are trying to speak truth into your life? Maybe some of you are wandering in another way. You've been sinned against, but you refuse to deal with it the way that Jesus tells you to. It's easier for you, perhaps, to talk about each other rather than talk to each other. Would you rather pout or brood or swallow your pride and lovingly confront? Would you rather avoid than pursue? If you are prone to wander, Christian, Jesus will not stop pursuing you. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Maybe it would help to imagine Jesus pursuing you right now. You're wandering from him like a runaway bunny, and he's chasing you down. What is the look on his face when he finally catches up to you? Would you just take a second and picture that in your mind? What's the look on his face when Jesus pursues you and catches up to you? Is it disappointment? Is it a scowl? Is it brooding anger? Is he furious with you, Christian? Would you look again at verse 13? And if he finds it, the word if there can also mean when, so perhaps a better translation would be when he finds his wandering sheep. Truly I say to you, he what? 
rejoices. He rejoices over it. How much? More than over the 99 that never went astray. Dear Christian, few things bring God greater joy than when one of his wandering sheep are restored. His face is not a scowl when you repent, Christian, but it is open arms and a smile, and he's saying, I'm so glad you're back. I love the way Dane Ortland put it in his book, Gentle and Lowly. If you are a part of Christ's own body, your sins evoke his deepest heart, his compassion and pity. He is on your side. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He hates sin, but he loves you. This is not to ignore the disciplinary side of Christ's care for his people. We could add that, after all, this is a passage about church discipline. Orland continues, the Bible clearly teaches that our sins draw forth the discipline of Christ. He wouldn't truly love us if that were not true. But even, even this, even his discipline is a reflection of his great heart for us. When a body part has been injured, it requires the pain and labor of physical therapy. But that physical therapy is not punitive. It's intended to bring healing. It is out of care for that limb that the physical therapy is assigned. End quote. Unbeliever. Even on your best day, this love will never be true for you unless you become a part of the body of Christ by turning from your sins and putting your faith in him. And Christian, even on your worst day, this will always be true for you. It will never not be true for you because it is not the will of our Father that even one of these little ones should perish. Our sin is great but his mercy is more. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray.